Hi, I'm Eva Makovic, and you're listening to the Reader's Digest podcast, in which we navigate the woes and wonders of modern life with leading experts on the tools that you need to survive and thrive in 2019. On today's show, Anna Walker speaks to Molly Watson about her new book, Should We All Be Vegan?, exploring the thought-provoking arguments for and against universal adoption of a vegan diet and lifestyle. So thanks so much for joining us today, Molly. I think um, the best way to start is just to ask, how do we define veganism? Oh, well, veganism is uh, uh, interesting in that it only came about in the uh, 1940s as a separate term. And before that, there was quite a bit of controversy about what exactly a vegetarian necessarily meant. Mm. So the term vegan was come up for people who don't eat any animal products. Um, to differentiate it, it's from a more widely understood idea of vegetarianism where you don't eat meat. Uh, a vegan doesn't eat anything from animals. So that would include milk and eggs, uh, honey. Uh, hardcore vegans also, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't just not wear leather, which seems pretty obvious, and plenty of vegetarians don't wear leather, mm. but also wouldn't, serious, serious vegans might also not even wear silk or wool. Very seriously interested in, in something outside of themselves, and it would be either animal rights and or environmental sustainability. So those two things, um, you know, obviously if you're interested in animal rights and you think it's, you know, morally wrong to kill animals or to exploit them for human use, being a vegan is a pretty straightforward way to deal with that problem. Um, for people who are very interested in environmental sustainability, veganism uh, means their their diet has a much lower carbon footprint on the earth. It uses up much, many fewer resources um, than a diet that includes animal products. Uh, and then on the other side is the sort of more style uh, aspect um, that gets brought up, uh, a lot of people become vegans hoping to lose weight. It does seem to be pretty effective for that for a lot of people. Uh, and then there's also, along with that, a lot, of, a lot of health benefits can come with being vegan if you know enough about the nutrition to make sure you're getting all your proper nutrients, which is not that tricky, actually. It's a lot easier than people would have you believe. Mm. Um, there are a lot of health benefits with, if, if not completely eliminating animal products, greatly, greatly reducing them. Um, you can see a lot of uh, lower risk of cancer, lower risk of heart disease, lower risk of developing diabetes, all sorts of things. So with all these sort of positive benefits that you're talking about there, why do you think there's such a stigma attached to veganism? I mean, vegan is often the butt of jokes over here. I don't know if it's the same in America. Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty <laughs> worldwide. in California, so it's a very weird thing of like people either assuming, of course, you're vegan or mm-hmm. completely mocking it. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, part of it is uh, humans are social creatures. And one of the ways we have long socialized and created social bonds is by eating food together. Yeah. So, and one way different cultural groups will define themselves is by what they eat and don't eat. And that helps you know, you know, who your people are in a lot of ways, uh, historically. And so anytime someone doesn't eat something, it is a big marker, (laughs) you know, and especially Mm -hmm. if you get rid of an entire category of food, I think there is a sort of long historical idea of like someone is setting themselves apart from you. Um, and I think that with all the positive benefits of veganism, it can also be seen as sort of a 
pretentious or, you know, someone setting themselves as being much better than you, mm. um, especially if you start talking about the ethics of it, you know, you can start feeling pretty bad about <laughs> the meat and animal products you're eating. Uh, so I think that's part of it. I do think that, you know, most people who start, who start uh, off uh, taking on a vegan diet for themselves actually don't stick with it, which, you know, if you know enough people who've done that, it becomes sort of an easy thing to not take very seriously when someone starts doing it. Sure. Um, I think there's, there's, there's quite a few reasons. You know, also, you know, if, if you're really into uh, a good steak and delicious cheese, it, you know, I think it's pretty easy to uh, see someone eschewing that and, and kind of wanting to mock that because it seems like a silly, you know, rejection of pleasure (laughs) so you do despite the increase in people choosing to live vegan lifestyles you do mention in your book that the number of meat eaters across the world is actually growing why is that well it's because we're at a particular i mean i think for for you guys and actually in the united states you know we uh have kind of reached a a peak uh of people most people in the population being able to eat the food they want to eat on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and meat that was once a much more luxury product is just seen as a regular grocery item. Um, and But around the world, that's not true. You have a growing middle classes in many countries, particularly India and China, which have huge populations. And as people have more money and more access to wider range of food stuff, guess what? They also want to eat meat every day. Mm -hmm. Places where maybe they didn't want to eat meat every day. And it was a much more luxury item and it becomes a real sign of success, you know? Um, So that's that's it. It's really just more people having more money and more resources. Sure. And, And what are those negative impacts of people eating more meat in terms of the environment? Can our planet withstand this increased consumption of animals and animal byproducts? Uh, you know, not really. Is <laughs> the short answer, I imagine. <laughs> I mean, the short answer is like, we don't really know, but not really. Yeah. Um, the, another answer would be there's, uh, you know, other things that have a bigger impact on the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but agri- agriculture and food production is a huge one. And uh, animal uh, raising livestock is, you know, by far the biggest contributor of greenhouse gases within agriculture. Uh, so... It is a um, it is a way that can have a big impact, reducing especially the amount of beef. I mean, there is there is a real hierarchy when you start talking about uh, greenhouse gases and environmental impact, and you know, beef has a much bigger environmental impact than than any of the other animals raising cattle does. Yeah, and something that surprised mm-hmm. me in the book was the history of veganism, actually, and the fact that it goes so far back in time. What can you tell us about the Pythagorean diet that you mentioned in the book? I know. Isn't that fascinating? So fascinating. I just loved that before people were vegetarians, they were Pythagoreans. Yeah. <laughs> Walking around. So, yeah, he had some pretty wacky uh, things going on with his diet. Uh, so this is this is Pythagoras, it, the mathematician, I believe. Yeah, Pythagoras, yeah. exactly. Um, he uh, was, it seems like vegan. You know, from what we can tell, and from from what we can tell, probably even a raw food, mainly vegan. Um, so really, just eating some raw plants, which you know sounds sounds intense to me, mm-hmm. for one. Um, and and also, supposedly like, didn't eat beans because the hollow core. He thought you know somehow went to the spirit world. There was some there was some stuff in there that gets a little a little goofy. But yeah, he believed in a um, animal free diet uh, and. 
his thinking on that uh, was definitely picked up, you know, over time and referred to for centuries. If you didn't eat meat or if you didn't eat any animal products, you would have mm. considered yourself to have to follow the Pythagorean diet. It wasn't it wasn't called vegetarianism, uh, and the the reason for it was really one of it had a it had that real Greek thing of you know you have to it's it's about the body and the mind and you can and, and overemphasizing one over the other leads to problems like mm-hmm. a kind of balance there and this idea that in order to have the the higher state of consciousness to do interesting intellectual work you also needed to be extremely healthy and that this is one way to do that mm-hmm. um, and you see a lot of references in history of, of of philosophers and artists and people who choose to uh, not eat meat for at least times, if not their entire life, they'll at least go through phases during that. And they will talk about how they have so much more energy and they feel so much lighter um, and they sleep better. I mean, you can kind of hear all these things that then help them do their work better. It's an interesting thing. Sure. I mean, some of the famous people you mentioned surprised me, like Albert Einstein, for example, I didn't know was, was he vegan, vegetarian, but had a meat-free diet? Uh, yeah, he was at least vegetarian. So a lot of this is because there wasn't a separate word for a long time. People mm. sort of defined it, much as they do now. I mean, you will find people who call themselves vegetarian, but they eat fish, you know, which sure. someone else would think that that's not. So it, a little bit is, is all self-defining, of course. Um, and for the most part, people were, when you hear about people not you know, being vegetarian, they're usually having some amount of animal products. They're usually not pure vegan. Yeah, sure. But it's hard, it's hard to tell. People didn't used to write as about their diets as much as they do now. I'll say that yeah. much. <laughs> so I think many of us, I mean, myself included in this, are guilty of ignoring some of the harsh realities of the animal welfare consequences of being a meat eater. Are there any sort of standout shocking facts that you feel meat eaters should know if they're going to continue that diet about the way their food is, is produced? Right. And there, I, it's important to me to sort of separate, separate out um, your sort of standard industrial-raised animals versus animals that are being raised in a more humane way. Sure. Because it is possible to be a meat eater, and if you're getting your, um, your meat from certain sources, you really aren't coming across some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the, the thing that, that I find most troubling, uh, if I think about it <laughs> too long, is how pigs are treated. Right. Um, and part of that really is because pigs are extremely intelligent social animals. Uh, you know, many, many studies find them more intelligent than dogs and more socially adept than dogs. Um, who, you know, we, we would not think of treating dogs cruelly, most mm-hmm. of us. Um, and the way that pigs are raised in the industrial, like most pork that's available at most supermarkets, the way those animals are raised is really horrifying. Um, you know, kept in crates where they can't really move. Um, the, it's, um, at different operations, you know, the, 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 the piglets, are often in such crowded conditions, like they'll actually just get crushed to death. Mm. Um, the, yeah, it's very, very dirty. You know, they're just, they're in these crates, and so they um, are just excreting everything right there over, and the crate has a slotted floor to just let it all go underneath. Yeah. And the gas, the ammonia and the other gases in there can be so bad that, like, workers actually develop lung problems. Um, so what's that like for the animal? What's that like for the meat we're eating? Mm. Um so I would really encourage people who, you know, do want to continue eating meat to find out where their meat is actually coming from 
Um, and you'll find that if you get pork from a place that's raising them more the way that we all imagine they're being raised, which is outside in the meadow frolicking around <laughs> together, um, you can find pork raised that way. And the, the difference in flavor and texture, like everything about it is so much better. You kind of wonder why you were ever eating the other stuff. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, chickens also are just treated horribly and their beaks get burnt off and, you know, they're, um, yeah, and they've been bred at this point, so they're sort of going to be physically, they're they're bred to be physically miserable during their lifetime um, mm-hmm. because people like breast meat so much, especially in the U.S., this is a huge thing where uh, it's all about the chicken breast, so they've bred these chickens to have just huge breasts, so they, some of them, when they... Um, get full size literally can't stand up i know there are pictures in your book that show sort of a standard chicken's progress in growth and then a chicken that's kept in these sorts of conditions and how much larger they are bred to be is quite shocking when you see them side by side it's amazing isn't it it's Mm. just a couple decades that Mm. that's happened yeah yeah and they almost look like kind of radioactive chickens but that's something we're doing deliberately it's crazy and they kind of are, yeah. Part of it is breeding them that way, and then part of it is, you know, the way they're being fed and being given antibiotics, um, which can act as a growth stimulant along with, um, you know, keeping them from getting too sick in extremely unhelpful conditions. Mm-hmm. So those all together is what makes, makes those pictures so disturbing. And speaking of antibiotics in the way we keep our meat kind of clean and disease-free when they're in such close quarters... I was interested in the stuff you're talking about with chlorine and the way meat is washed and how that's prevented in EU by EU rules. I guess there's so much up in yeah. the air about how um, Brexit's going to affect British meat quality once that comes in, because there's all these laws that are now going to be, who knows what's going to happen to them. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think, you know, all that regulation has been centralised, right? Yeah. So, do you need to re-regulate, I assume, is what's going to happen, and which of those, it seems like some of those regulations might not be transferred back over. Mm-hmm. You know, you might have a much looser regulation system. You might be stuck with something more like what we have. <laughs> so we've talked about the welfare benefits of a vegan diet, um, but what about the environmental cost of eating meat? What are the sort of What is the damage that we're doing to our planet by so many people consuming meat on a daily, if not each meal basis yeah the damage is pretty striking i mean you do have the the sort of localized damage of um you know these because animals are really being raised i mean in the u.s here you know at numbers that are just completely shocking but um, even in the uk and europe it's um much more these much more concentrated farms than we used to have Mm. Um, animals are being raised on much more um Highly, in more highly concentrated environments than they used to be raised, and that means everything is, is more concentrated. They have less room to move around, but also there's less place for their waste to go. So on a just very local level, there can be issues around how much animal waste and where that waste goes, and that can affect um, you know, soil quality, can affect water quality. There's, there's things like that that are sort of immediate to the farm, right? Mm. Um, and then there's the, the issues of um, growing enough feed to feed all these animals because most of them are not being raised on pasture anymore. They're not feeding themselves the way they used to. They're having food produced for them and brought to them. Mm. Um, and that's largely corn and soy. So you're having um, larger areas of monocrops, um, you know, big swaths of land being used to raise single crops, 
much of which is going to animal feed instead of to, to humans. Um, and then you have uh, the effect of just the greenhouse gases. So <laughs> greenhouse gases, so from cattle, for example, or cows and dairy cows as well, uh, these are animals that naturally are going to be produced just because of their size, producing a lot of gas through, you know, the two ways that mammals produce <laughs> gas, burping and farting. I was going <laughs> to say, that's very tastefully, that's <laughs> very tastefully put. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to put it nicely and then I gave up. Um, and then the thing, the thing is with, with cattle, with, with cows in general, when you start feeding them food that is not what they're meant to eat, so they're basically meant to eat grass and grasses, things like that. When we start feeding them corn and soy, it really messes up their system and makes them even gassier. So the amount of cattle we have would be making a lot of greenhouse gas, methane gas anyway. Um, and then the way that we feed it at feedlots, it actually produces much more. So cattle is actually producing a lot of greenhouse gas just from, 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 the, from its existence, you know, from having so yeah. many of them. Um, and then you also have deforestation happening to create more grazing land and, and to create more cropland to raise the soy and corn that, gets, that they're finished off with. So people may not know this, but most, um, most beef is being raised. It's uh, allowed to graze on pasture for most of its life because it just economically makes sense. Uh, and then when, it's, uh, when they're getting closer to the time they're going to slaughter the animal, they bring it into a feedlot and they finish it with grains. It's called finishing, but it's, they're fed this much more highly concentrated caloric diet towards the end to fatten them up, basically. Right. Um, and that, uh, that's when you start, you know, you're giving things that they wouldn't normally eat mm -hmm. uh, that can create some more problems. Something I enjoyed about your book was that you do show both sides of the coin and how there can be negative impacts of a vegan diet sometimes, too. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the impact of the increased demand for quinoa and avocado, for example? Yeah, so, I mean, those are not, you know, necessarily all vegan. So, you know, the demand for, for quinoa, for example, has made it so that um, in uh, it's where it's natively grown in, or not natively grown, but where it's been traditionally cultivated in South America, prices at one point were so high, there was such high demand for quinoa that the local populations actually couldn't afford to keep the quinoa for themselves. Um, and, and they couldn't afford to eat their traditional food stuff anymore. Uh, more recently, demand for avocado meant that Mexico, which is one of the world's largest producer of avocados, was at the one point um, exporting so much of their crop due to demand, they were then having to import avocados from other lesser countries oh to meet their own internal demand, which like, becomes just this crazy you know, global trade situation of like, where are the avocados all going? Yeah. Um, so uh, and that was partly you know, a, a peak in demand from the you know, complete love of healthy fats here in the U.S. right now with people uh, eating all kinds of avocado. So that's sort of, uh, you know, just a possible impact. Like, the, it's, it's not necessarily a negative thing of being vegan. Mm -hmm. It's just there's going to be, it kind of points, those two instances point to if we actually had huge groups of people changing their diet this radically, um, there would need to be a real change in what kind of food we're producing and where we're producing it. Sure. Um, and that, to me, is a sort of more interesting thing because right now, you know, you hear different recommendations between, you know, we're supposed to eat between five and nine servings of fruit and vegetables a day is what we're sort of told, right? Mm. 
Um, and in the U.S. anyway, we're so far from doing that. And I know in the U.K. you're also very far from doing yeah. that. But in the U.S., we're so far from doing that. That wouldn't even be, if every person went out and tried to do that tomorrow, there wouldn't be enough root and vegetable. Like, there, we're not growing anywhere close to that much. Yeah, that was mind-blowing when so, I read that. Yeah, so, you know, it's great. We should all be trying to do that, but we should also know, like, <laughs> like actually, we know for a fact that people are not eating that much. Sure. <laughs> that is not happening. Um, so if we added to that, if we took out all animal products, or even most animal products, you know, that's going to be a real shift in the demand for, say, soy in order to get enough protein um, and just other products, probably whole grains and fruit and veg, obviously, as well. Sure. It's interesting to me that the kind of losers in these scenarios sort of of deforestation to provide more ground for cattle of that kind of avocado and quinoa scenarios always seem to be the same communities that are losing out at the hand of the meat industry at the hand of the healthy eating industry whatever it is it seems to come down to those same communities that are bearing a lot of the burden for these changes in trends yeah i mean that because we're operating in a capitalist system (laughs) yeah it's just it's a very it's just very, very straightforward of, you know, who has the demand, who has the money, who has the power. So, yes, it is, for the most part, developing countries that bear the brunt of the economic fallout from some of these things, mm-hmm. um, a lack of regulation, you know, because standard people do go to other countries because the standards are lower, or they, it isn't, not standards are lower, but it, it just isn't as regulated, sure. so they can do more what they want um, is part of the issue as well. And... And then also a lot of those countries are already bearing the brunt of a lot of climate change and environmental issues anyway. Um, And part of that is just because where they are located geographically, and part of that is um, due to, you know, different regulations. Sure. So, yeah, it's it's depressing when you start looking at those maps, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But to try and come back to something a little bit more positive at least... Um, (laughs) many people choose a vegan lifestyle because of the health benefits rather than just the welfare concerns is it true that a vegan diet is healthier than a meat-eating one um it is it is uh that is such a tricky thing because it really is so it depends on individual needs Mm -hmm. obviously it also depends on exactly what you can have a very you can be vegan and be eating horrible food you know potato chips are vegan Sodas are vegan. Um, so you can eat a lot of junk food and be vegan, and you could have a diet that included meat and animal products that was all, you know, whole foods-based, lots of whole grains along with your meat, lots of fruit and veg along with with the cheese, um, and that would be the healthier thing. Overall, is it easier to have a healthful diet if you're vegetarian or vegan? Yes, I would say overall it is. Um, and studies show again and again that those diets really do have quite a few health benefits to them. Now, the good news from our ISIT is that all the studies that show the health benefits of vegetarianism and veganism also show that you get a lot of those benefits just by reducing your consumption of animal products. Um, so this idea that people feel like, oh, I'd have to give up all these things I love, um, it's not worth it, I'm not going to do it, it's not, you know, it doesn't really have to be an all or nothing thing. You can take a lot of the lessons that you can see from vegans um, and a lot of the health benefits of that, and you can harness quite a few of them just by making some, what a lot of people would see as much more modest changes to your diet. Mm. 
which I take to be very good news. (laughs) Definitely. What advice would you give to somebody who either wants to transition to a vegan diet or wants to become more sort of flexitarian, some people say, in their approach to food, but doesn't know where to start with that? Yeah, the flexitarian thing I think is a really good, I think it's very hard to just, um, I mean, for some, it, this is a personality thing, right? Mm-hmm. For some people, it's easier to just go cold turkey. <laughs> like, <laughs> they would have an easier time. It's easier for them to just say, I am vegan, I don't eat animal products, and then that decision is made, and they go forth from there. Um, and for them, I say, best of luck, I admire you very much. For most people, it's a lot easier to make sort of smaller, more incremental changes. Um, you know, I think one of the great things, the whole meat with Monday thing, mm-hmm. is just such a great place for people to start to just very consciously say, okay, on this one day, I'm not going to eat meat this one day. And then you turn it into two days, and then you turn it into three days. Um, and eventually you could get, you know, maybe it's, you only have meat once. It, it switches around, and meat is something you have once a week. Um, or maybe you have it once a month, or maybe you just have the Christmas roast, you know. Um, and I think once people start... I think one of the more intimidating things is that they don't know what to eat. Um, and I do think that that used to be a very, uh, obviously a legitimate question, but it used to be one that was a lot harder to answer. But now, with so many vegetarian options available um, and so many great vegetarian cookbooks and vegetarian cooking sites and recipes available, I do think it is the bar to entry of like reducing your meat consumption is a lot lower. You know, it's a lot easier to find the kinds of foods that, that substitute in for meat in a meal. Like being, um, you know, there's also a lot of places I think it's easy to remember. Like, if you're looking for the kind of bulk satiety, it's really good to go to, like, the lentils and beans, the different legumes can kind of give you that in a meal. Um, and if what you're looking for is that more umami, that real savory flavor, mushrooms are great for that, um, kind of hitting that, that note. Um, and then, of course, if what you're looking for is just like a huge dose of protein, soy, 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 different soy products will give you that. Yeah, because I think I discovered through your book that it's kind of a bit of a myth that the biggest problem with going vegan is that your protein is out the window. Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, both, both in the UK and the US, like we all eat way too much protein. So we're all not way too much. We're eating way more protein than we actually need. Um, so... If, if you think you need to replace all the protein that's in your diet, you actually don't. Most people probably only need about half as much as they're eating as it is. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, I mean, kind of all, not all, but most food has some protein in it. Um, so this idea that you have to have meat to get enough protein is uh, completely a, a very antiquated notion. It's also based, people might still think this. I, I was kind of surprised at how many people working on this book and talking about it, how many people still thought this was true, that you actually need the protein in meat because it's the only kind where you get a complete um, amino acid uh, uh, situation, profile. Uh, but it ends up that we don't need to eat all of them together. Uh, you can eat you know, some of the amino acids at one meal, some at another meal, some later that month. They're all stored in our body, and our body's actually very good at pulling the ones that are needed to complete the protein chain at any any given uh, time. So we actually don't need those, comp- what we're, are known as complete proteins, um, are not nearly as important as people used to think they were. Why do you think it is all of our responsibility to start thinking more carefully about our diet and what we're consuming? 
I mean, I think the thing that really motivates me on that is, it's, you know, this is stuff we're putting in our bodies. <laughs> it's the most, like, intimate product there is, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's uh, the, the idea that we've abdicated any interest or responsibility. So many of us have abdicated any responsibility on that or any curiosity about it. Uh, I find I find kind of kind of just very surprising, um, and I think you know to, if it's our responsibility really to, if nothing else, take care of ourselves, you know, yeah. and our families, and be aware. And I'm not saying not to eat certain things or to only eat other things at all. I I mean just for the record, I'm actually not vegan, um, and uh, so I'm not preaching anything other than more awareness about what you choose to eat and making sure you're you're making a, ch- a choice and not just eating stuff because that's what's always been eaten or that because that's what's there. Um, and I think once you start looking into it and you just see a lot of, you know, really not great food is being marketed to us and it's being, you know, people are making a lot of money on some on food that's making us sick. Um, and that, you know, participating in that just feels really wrong to me. Um, and then if you move into the level of, you know, caring about other creatures, whether you come at it from caring about other creatures or caring about the environment or both of those things, uh, these food choices we make really do have a huge impact and they, on, on the world around us. And obviously any one person's choice doesn't make a huge difference. You know, I, I think that there's, a level of belief in sort of ethical consumerism that's a little bit false. Uh, we also need the regulations. We also need standards that, um, you know, in, to my mind, all food that's being sold should be raised in a helpful, sustainable way. Like, we should really, as individual consumers, shouldn't have to do that research. But right now we do. And I think the more that we actually have that information, the more uh, there will be sort of more of a demand to make sure all the food is good for us, basically. Sure. No, that's my vision. <laughs> it should all be good for us. <laughs> <laughs> Voting with your wallet, I think they call it, don't they? <laughs> yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Molly. Should We All Be Vegan is out now, published by Thames and Hudson. Please rate and review our podcast if you enjoy what we do. And tell us about your take on veganism on Facebook or interact with us on our Twitter feed, which is at Reader's Digest UK. For more stories about health, food, and culture, subscribe to our newsletter by going to readersdigest.co.uk. Thank you so much for joining us, and until next time.